Hello, and welcome to Bright Lights, Big Data, a podcast about people, places, and data. I'm your data host, Tammy Armstrong. And I'm your planning host, Mike Armstrong. And we're happy to have you all here with us for our last episode of the year. Ooh! Happy New Year's Eve. Happy New Year's Eve. We have made it through 2018. Mm Mm-hmm. So we thought that we could tie off a few things, talk a bit about some larger things from 2018 that stood out to us that we didn't get a chance to talk about on the show, as well as some upcoming things as well setting up for 2019, because we're really excited for the new year. Yeah, it's that time when it may be a little cliche, but we kind of like to look back at the year behind us in preparation for the year ahead. Yeah, so why don't you get us started? Yeah, so starting off with kind of personal growth things, there's some things that I started doing in 2018, and so some kind of personal accomplishments and, and growth things. It's hard to believe all of this happened in 2018, but I was a New Leaders Council 2018 fellow in mm-hmm. Des Moines, which is part of the reason that we launched this podcast in the first place. So that was really awesome and really a great group of young professionals and leaders in our community and an amazing network and just really excited to have met those people and and to continue talking to them and, and being friends with them. I was promoted to management position Mm -hmm. in the spring of this year. So I went from being kind of an individual analyst to having a team that I get to lead. So I'm the team leader of our customer service analytics team. And that's been a really great experience, kind of a scary thing I wasn't sure I wanted to take on. But it's been a really exciting avenue for growth, kind of getting back into managing people and working on their growth. Yeah, and you still get to do analysis, but now it's a lot more of setting direction as well. Absolutely. So yeah, I still get to be hands-on. I'm not necessarily coding as much as I would, which is another reason that very recently towards the end of the year, I started playing around with a website called Project Euler. And uh, that's what I'm I'm pretty sure that's what your dad, the math teacher said. So there's like, if you took calculus, you might remember the lowercase letter E being a special numerical constant that was really important and named after a mathematician whose name is spelled E-U-L-E-R. I have heard this pronounced Whaler and Euler and your dad... Corrected me that it is Euler, so I'm going with that, with his math I mean, teacher chops. I would trust him, but yeah. I'm probably biased. Um, I'm just surprised that it's uh, Euler mail. <laughs> I do not get that joke. Email. Oh, no. Well, that's getting cut. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, so project... Euler.org uh, is a really fun website. It's totally free, and it's basically a little, like, math puzzles, but they're designed to be done in programming languages, so it's good practice to brush up on different skills, so you kind of have to end up, you know, doing loops. So it's like, what is the sum of the first 100 prime numbers? And so you have to figure out how to teach your computer to identify prime numbers and then keep the first 100 and add them all up. And so then you punch in the answer to the website and it tells you if you're right or wrong. The questions get more difficult as you go up. There's hundreds of questions and it's it's been really fun. Uh, oh, another thing that I got to do this year was serve on a Women in Data panel for the DEMA Iowa One Day Conference that they do. Just some fun couple things going on that, that started in 2018 and I'm excited to continue next year. Yeah, that what about, sounds great. What about you? What did you get up to this year? 
I will focus less on accomplishments, though there were some. I'm very accomplishment-driven. That's, like, my personality. Sure, so sure. So coming through there. Um, looking forward, though, I have left the MPO. <gasps> I've put in uh, four years there, really enjoyed my time. I'm happy that I'm staying in sort of the same field, and I'll get to work with them from a different position. But starting 2019, I will be with the Des Moines Bicycle Collective which will soon be changing names and expanding its mission to become the Street Collective. So still looking at bicycling, but also walking, transit, ADA accessibility issues, and trying to dig further into not just advocacy, but more of the planning side and more of the engagement side as well. So we can help sort of bridge that gap between government and community to help elevate concerns, issues, priorities, as well as helping the government side plan around these identified needs. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy to join that team. It's a really exciting group and, you know, they're stepping out into this new arena as well. So I think it's going to be a really exciting time. Did you get, like, a cool job title? So I am the Director of Planning and Communications. So I am now Director Level. <laughs> I still get to incorporate a lot of stuff from the MPO, a lot of that long-term vision, transportation, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. engagement, but focusing a lot more on two- to three-year cycles instead of 20- to 30-year cycles. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm excited. This will be testing a few new skill sets, put me in different facets of my field, and I hope and believe it will spark a lot of professional growth, and it's an incredibly exciting project that I'm happy to be a part of. Yeah, congrats, Annie. Thank you. <laughs> and I would say I'm also grateful to the MPO for the experience that you had there and for bringing us to Des Moines. I mean, if it hadn't been for your nationwide job search and, mm -hmm. and landing there, I don't know that we would have focused on Des Moines, but it was such a great thing to happen to both of us, and we've really loved living here. So, And I think we've both made good friends through Absolutely. Um, your office there, so really great people. So moving on, the next thing I want to talk about is I decided this year to try to follow more data scientists and analysts on Twitter, like expand my professional horizons there. I use Twitter off and on, and it, it's kind of an interesting way to keep up on trends and funny things and, and network and meet people. And so there is actually someone who has started a list of women in data science. So that was a pretty cool way to kind of not only expand my horizons, but also see what other women in the field are doing. It's nice to, to lift up and support those women. And there's a couple of women in particular that I've really enjoyed keeping up on their work. So one is Cole nussbaumer Naflick, who you've heard me mention her work on the show before. She runs the Storytelling with Data blog and does workshops and a podcast and has a book. And then there's also Janelle Shane, who does a lot of work with neural networks in kind of funny ways. So you may have seen something on, I think it was hers, that on HuffPost about like a computer named these paint chips and it's like ridiculous names. So just kind of throwing the kitchen sink at an issue, that's kind of what a neural network is, is say, let's just give it a lot of examples, throw it at the computer and see what it might come out with. It's more sophisticated than that, but it's a brute force in some ways, statistically speaking. So she does like recipe generators. She's done knock-knock joke generators. And there's one that she did really recently that wrote Christmas carols. And I just want to read this one for you because it's just so amazing. She shared this on her Twitter feed. 
King of toys and hippopotamuses, full of the light of that stood at the dear son of Santa Claus. He was born in a wonderful Christmas tree. Run, run, Rudolph, 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 the newborn king. All right. And I don't know what's funnier to me at the end there, that it ends in Run, Run, Rudolph, the Newborn King, or if the fact that all of those Rudolphs, except one, is spelled with a PH, and then the last one's spelled with an F. Like, it's just, computers are funny. So that's been really delightful. I encourage everyone who likes to just see the goofiness of what computers and robots can do, and maybe also, like, bring it down to earth in terms of the robot apocalypse. Like, they're not sophisticated enough to necessarily take over the world like this is the christmas carol that they wrote yet (laughs) you know and there there's usually a lot of human interaction to find the funny ones too Um, she also tends to share stories of trying to get computers to solve a problem i think there's an example of a crew on a spaceship the ship has been damaged they're losing oxygen what do you do how do you preserve the most oxygen, I think was said as kind of the function to maximize. And so in, you know, many of the trials, the computer said, we'll just kill off all the crew, you know? (laughs) And again, that kind of leans more towards robot apocalypse, but just sort of, (laughs) they're only as smart as we tell them to be, and we catch these issues and fix them. And she shares lots of really funny stories and and just kind of really outside the box of what I normally do with with analytics and statistics. And I think it's always fun to, to keep your your eye out on those more creative solutions and Mm -hmm. techniques. So my second thing, I want to talk about something positive Mm -hmm. in planning that may not be in Des Moines, but is happening um, and is part of a larger trend that I think is going to be really positive. Okay. So I'm going to tell you about two things that I think I've contaminated you enough, but for some of our our listeners, um, it may sound... Yeah, that's one word for marriage. (laughs) It may sound scary or discouraging at first. Um, So there were a few examples. The one I wanted to pull out was the Minneapolis 2040 plan. Okay. So this is, again, one of those very long-term plans that set the vision for the region. But two of the things that really stood out to me in this plan are that, first, it calls for the elimination of all parking minimums. So So what's a parking minimum? Like, I have to park here at least 20 minutes. Not quite. (laughs) So currently... In almost all of the U.S., there are parking minimums set based on what type of building or use is present. So if you build an apartment complex, Mm -hmm. you need to have maybe 1.5 parking stalls for every unit. Okay. I would love to tell you this is based on science. (laughs) It's something that's been around for a long time, and it starts to take on that oh, this must be scientific. They're very specific numbers. Mm -hmm. If you have a church, you need to have this many parking spots per pew, (laughs) which is different than if it's for a mosque. Different ratios. Not entirely sure why. That sounds vaguely bigoted. (laughs) You need to have a specific number of parking spots per lane in a bowling alley. (laughs) Bowlers hate carpooling. There are so many different types of buildings and uses that have very specific, like, decimal point level numbers Mm -hmm. for how many parking spots need to be provided. And I'm guessing it doesn't matter whether that apartment building, say, well, and it probably varies from city to city, but it's not necessarily zoned of, like, if you're in the heart of downtown where people could 
conceivably walk a lot of places might be the same as being kind of on the outskirts. It's more suburb-like. That was like the the second step. Mm. So for a long time, we set these minimum parking requirements because we want parking. We don't mm-hmm. want everybody to be fighting over street space. We don't want... <laughs> Northwest Portland. Everybody drives around for like an hour trying to find a street spot. <laughs> That's sort of the ultimate fear of it. So there was that second phase of like, all right, well, we can start to minimize the amount of parking required if it's on a transit line or Mm, if it's mm -hmm. downtown. The problem, though, is that adding parking minimums has a whole host of collateral effects. So if you're required to provide 1.5 parking spots for every apartment unit, the developer is not going to pay for that out of his pocket. So they are going to increase the rent. So even Mm -hmm. if you don't have a car, but you're renting this apartment, Mm -hmm. your rent is up higher. Yeah. Sometimes they can separate that out, but most of the times it's just included in the price of housing. A lot of times the things that people would want to build, they end up not being able to. A lot of times it may be a bit of an overstatement, but say you want to build a pretty small business, you know, you're an entrepreneur, you're starting out, and you're like, well, I want to have this little storefront. They're like, that's great. You have to provide eight parking spots. And suddenly you have to buy additional land to be able to provide this, because you're certainly not going to be able to afford to put it underground or in power. (laughs) Uh So suddenly your footprint has to get so much bigger, and that makes it difficult for certain types of businesses or buildings to go Mm -hmm, up. mm -hmm. It makes it really hard to redevelop older areas where... They were built Mm. without that parking Mm -hmm. because suddenly you have to add that parking if you're going to change it. Hmm. So I'm here to say that I think this is a very good thing. This doesn't mean that an apartment complex developer can't provide parking. Right. But it's up to them. They haven't set a maximum on -hmm. it. So if a developer in Northwest Portland, if a developer here in the East Village was like, I think that my potential tenants will really value having an assigned parking spot. Mm-hmm. They can still add that in. Right, right. But, but they're not required to. It's a market decision rather yeah. than being mandated by the government. And the second part, and I'll need to explain it because it's misleading at first, but they are ending single-family zoning. Hey. So single-family zoning is residential areas uh. where you're only allowed to build single-family homes. And not so you your, can't like, have... dream of the ramen shop with an apartment over... On the second floor. Right. <laughs> but you can't do duplexes or smaller apartment buildings or those kinds of things. Single family housing means that it has to be just mm. a sing- like a building for a single family. So in a lot of places, it's almost set as a ceiling. You can build single family housing, but you can't build anything larger. Mm-hmm. By ending single family zoning in this area, they're not saying you can't build single right. family housing. Okay. They're just saying you could also build, you know, a duplex or row houses or a small apartment building. Mm-hmm. So again, this is more allowing neighborhoods and areas to be more contextual be able to make their own decisions more without having these additional requirements Mm -hmm. that completely change how much space our buildings take up, how much density or compactness Mm -hmm. there is. If you have to have a surface parking lot attached to every building, suddenly the buildings are spread apart, so there's space Mm -hmm. between them for parking. And now you can't walk to as many things because everything's so spread out. Right. Um, It means there's a lot more curb cuts or driveways leading up, which again, discourages walking, makes it harder to do dense transit nodes. 
So this land use foundation, these rules about what you can do on property drastically affects sort of the outcomes in terms of transportation. So land use foundation rules, that is a category encompassing the parking minimums and the single family zoning? Yeah, so zoning, ordinances like parking requirements, you know, these all typically fall under more land use decisions Hmm. and development decisions. But of course, they have a really big connection to transportation and quality of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, transportation gets you from A to B. So what does A and B look like? It's going to impact that. So this is something that's been talked about for a long time, but it's been politically difficult in a lot of places. So it's nice to see that some areas are taking steps Mm-hmm. towards this. And again, they're removing requirements rather than adding requirements, which right, I like. Right. They're hopefully simplifying this for, you know, residents, neighborhoods, businesses, developers, so that they can try things and build within their neighborhood and add to the existing fabric. Well, and it seems to me like those two things that they are making for the better would be options for like redlining kind of practices, right? Like if you've got sort of an attractive area, an area where a lot of people want to live, at least we'll say maybe it's Mm -hmm. a hub. And so real estate is at a premium. If you were only legally allowed to build a single house, you can only sell that or rent that to one family at a time. Whereas if you could build kind of a, a large apartment complex, then you'd be able to respond to what the market is really pushing for. But if you kind of have your neighborhood of people that are like, no, we don't want this influx, maybe using those laws as exclusionary practices. Sure. Yeah. Anything that increases the amount of land you need, increases the cost, of course, is going to have some exclusionary aspects. And this is a very large plan. I haven't dug through all of it. And you talked about some of the other things that would impact it, especially in zoning. So you can say that you need to have this much land per house Mm. so that houses have really big footprints and again that increases the cost and creates certain types of residents or you know Mm. neighborhoods but Minneapolis is doing some cool things around this and I wanted to talk about something that's not strictly uh, transportation but Mm -hmm. has a big impact so I was happy to see that. Uh, So for my last thing that I wanted to share um, we were each kind of looking back at the year and thinking about like what were some of the big news stories that really had to do with our industries respectively and that that we might want to reflect on and kind of remember and there were two that most came to mind for me and it's kind of interesting because they sort of tie together in a common theme around sort of personal information security Um, and I want to just say right up front like I'm not a cyber security person shouts to Antoinette on the info security side of things. But I do think that there are implications for analytics and cybersecurity on both of these. So the first one is the Strava story that happened right at the beginning of the year, really in, in January. So for those who are less familiar, Strava is kind of an app that lets you track your fitness activities. So you can turn on your Fitbit or your phone and say, okay, I'm going to start a run and it will track, you know, how long you've been running or biking or or swimming or what have you. But you can also turn on and it primarily focuses on your location. And so you can say, this is the route that I ran or that I cycled. And then you can share that socially. There's a little bit of a social network and you can share it to Facebook and whatnot. With somewhat the idea of saying, hey, these, this was a great running route and maybe other people can find those routes and use them themselves. 
So Strava in 2018, kind of doing what we're doing now, looking back on 2017, released this highly detailed heat map of the entire world of all of their users adding up to over a billion kind of transactions or exercises, activities completed that showed all the routes that people ran. And so when you kind of zoomed out at the country level, you know, you're looking at the United States and there's just these bright lights everywhere. You can see where major city centers are, but it was, I guess it was a high resolution enough that you could actually like zoom into a city and basically see in a really dense city like New York, pretty much every single road is highlighted because, you know, it basically have a black background and then light where people had logged routes and that light would be brighter as more people or more exercises were logged there. So really cool idea. I consider myself somewhat of a data visualization geek, like, oh, that's awesome. However, mm-hmm. this had some unintended consequences, and apparently some people in kind of military intelligence saw some issues immediately in that uh, if you were to zoom into, say, Syria, there were very few points of light, not a lot of Strava users in Syria, and that's a pretty good guess that all of the Strava users or close to it in Syria happened to be U.S. military, and suddenly, previously secret military bases were suddenly just shining bright on as the map. As well as, what routes do they take every and day? And what routes do they take every day? I don't know that they had times associated with it, but you could basically see the, the outline of the bases, you know? Right. I mean, it's not just, here's a centroid and a, and a blur, it's here's the lines and the turns and the grid. Here is the base. Um, and this was not exclusive to the U.S. military. I think the RAF also had some issues. And uh, the article I was catching up with was like, yeah, there's going to be a lot of people having um, uncomfortable discussions Monday morning being lectured to. Uh, and this is really ultimately the fault of the users. You know, I mean, if you're on a secret military base, you should not be doing anything in which you are sharing your location data Sure. to a any third party, you know, um, there should be, and, and that's kind of part of the story here, or what I'm trying to get at here too, is I think when we think about personal information security, we think about things more like the Equifax breach. We think about our banking information, our social security numbers, things that are having our identities stolen. But there's a lot more information out there that can be used against you, that that could be sensitive in nature, if in the right hands, using the right analytical techniques. And so, you know, if you're zoomed out on a map of the world and just seeing these bright spots, mostly in the U.S., you know, unless you already had an idea like, I wonder what this looks like in Syria, you might not really have seen that at first with just the naked eye, but you would have been able to run those images through uh, a data mining program and been able to look for, show me where there are concentrations of light that are far from other concentrations of light. Just different things to look for basically geographic outliers that could automate that. So, you know, there might be situations essentially where you'd say, Who's going to look at that? I mean, yeah, it's out there, but who's going to find it? Well, computers can help us find it now. Uh, And the other big story, of course, was uh, Cambridge Analytica, and this happened in the spring. Cambridge Analytica was a British political consulting firm that was using different data methods to basically understand voters' personalities and try to influence the voters and their voting decisions. And they got in trouble because they, they worked with a professor at Cambridge. So Facebook, in their terms of service, they 
basically let academia use data for different research projects under the conditions that they will not transfer those to anybody else. They won't have financial gain for it. It's just supposed to be for research purposes. Well, there, Cambridge Analytica found somebody who was willing to break those rules and transfer that data. So uh, they basically developed apps on Facebook to take personality quizzes or do other things that then also, you know, if you ever use Facebook and you ever try to authorize a third-party app, it will tell you what information you're sharing with that app. A lot of times it's maybe more than what the app strictly needs. And so they were harvesting all of this information uh, to understand voters. So they, it wasn't strictly speaking a data breach because Facebook wasn't hacked. It was basically the equivalent to somebody printing out a bunch of uh, information and handing it to somebody, you know. Um, that's not being hacked, but it, it is still problematic. So, I mean, there's sort of the simple, straightforward method of using a personality survey to understand someone's personality, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of basic. And maybe those surveys looked fun. I don't know if that's one of those things of like, who of your friends is going to die first in a zombie apocalypse? Like, those kinds of things might seem more innocuous. But again, they're harvesting all that data from your profile, from your friends, looking at your networks. And again, it's not your bank account information, but it is like what pages you like, what things do you like, and through clustering methods and other data science techniques, they would be able to put together kind of, for lack of a better word, profiles or maybe categories of voters to say, hey, this is like um, 18 to 25-year-old females who like rom-coms, you know, and they might have some assumptions about what that kind of person would do at the, the ballot box. So just really, I think we need to think about what we could be giving up when we trade information for some kind of convenience or pleasure, whether that's, you know, socially tracking and sharing workouts, or again, you know, seeing which of your friends would die first in the zombie apocalypse. I briefly used Strava to track my bike commute to work. Uh, I was trying to do like the bike challenge mm -hmm. one year. We did that together, actually. I'm going to try a couple different routes, and this will let me know how far I'm going and everything. I didn't have an Apple Watch yet. I, that was a lot easier to keep track of things. And I remember it basically like walking me through the setup steps and everything. And it's like, do you want to share your location? And you can kind of anonymize it. So you're giving more of a range rather than an exact route. And I don't know if this is unique to being a woman. Like it immediately sent up my sort of self-preservation red flags. Of, like this would basically tell somebody where I live, <laughs> what my routes are that I take every day, what my patterns are. Like mm -hmm. this is an instruction manual on how to assault me. <laughs> I was like, nope, <laughs> I'm not doing that. Um, and that's maybe not a great way to look at the world. It's not the fuzziest of feelings, but unfortunately, there are people out there who will look for that kind of stuff. So, Yeah, and I can't imagine we won't see more of these types of things in the future. I yeah. mean, there are a lot of more advanced things, but honestly, like the InfoSec people that I've talked to, the most common are still people clicking on things they shouldn't <laughs> right right they're like very high tech put in these security systems but if mm -hmm. somebody the human level is making these mistakes or if you're not paying attention mm -hmm. to what sort of information you're giving over it mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily have to be like a hack it's social engineering absolutely yeah. yeah yeah there's there's scary good stuff for that out there and so the nonprofit that i work with reboot iowa you know we did a cybersecurity workshop earlier in the year and um, we did some things for cybersecurity awareness month in october and you know i think that there's a model there 
that's really useful in in all walks of life. And it's um, something called a threat model. And you kind of just take inventory of what you have as assets, you know, what, and those could be physical assets, could be data assets. What's the most vulnerable? What would be the risk? You know, what would actually happen and how likely is it to happen? And how willing are you to mitigate it? So you could say like, okay, somebody could figure out my birthday and month. A lot of people know that already. Maybe that's not such a big deal. So I'm not really going to work very hard to protect that. But my bank account information, yeah, maybe I should make sure that that's really secure because that could do me a lot of damage. You know, just kind of thinking in those terms of what's the likelihood, what would be the damage, and scaling how much effort you would put into protecting yourself based on that. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything more positive? Because that was a doom and gloom discussion that I just had. Um, this is also going to be a little bit of a downer. Okay, well, we'll end more positive after that. <laughs> yeah, and there are positive things to it. But the other major trend that I saw, especially in articles and when people would come ask me questions about planning or transportation or cities, this past year a lot of it was about the tech sector's proposed solutions to long-standing problems in transportation. Hmm. So I have a couple of different examples here that all showed up in the news. If, you know, I was in a cab from the airport, this is something that people would ask me about. <laughs> First one is ride-hailing companies, okay. so Uber, mm-hmm. Lyft, those types of things. They've been around now long enough that we're starting to get a lot more data, not necessarily always from them, mm-hmm. but about them. Mm-hmm. And the things that we're learning is that these were proposed as technological solutions to problems like congestion. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out if you focus on adding a lot of drivers (laughs) to an area to solve congestion, it doesn't solve congestion. So New York City has been one of the best about collecting very robust data Mm -hmm. just across the board on a lot of different things. Yeah, they have great taxi data. So they've published a couple of studies saying that like, since Uber and Lyft and these other companies have really taken hold, congestion has gotten significantly worse. Mm -hmm. It may reduce a few trips of people driving themselves, but that is more than counteracted by Mm -hmm. Uber and Lyft drivers who are cruising nonstop Mm -hmm. and who frequently have an empty car. Yeah. So how many miles do they have to drive until a new passenger is available and they pick them up? Well, and you may be getting people who would otherwise take transit or walk now saying, ah, Uber's cheap and I can get it right to me rather than trying to find somewhere there's going to be a cab that I can hail with my hand. And that's the other side is it's had a really negative effect on transit services. And some of that has come directly from these ride-hailing services. To a degree, transit is their competition. Mm-hmm. And so while they have said from the beginning, you know, we're here to complement transit and mm-hmm. provide like last mile connections, I think they were well aware and it's become abundantly clear that people don't act that way. Mm-hmm. If they can get door to door quick service and the prices of Uber and Lyft are low from venture capital injected into that, people are going to do that instead of taking the bus. Mm-hmm. Another big one is the Tesla tunnel, uh, which was pretty recent. Elon Musk and um, his sort of... His whole deal. (laughs) His whole deal, sure. Um, But that sort of way of thinking, again, is it's 
a lot about problem definition from my mind. I can't say that his plans are not going to work out for him, mm-hmm. right? Like, like he um, may be accomplishing his goals, but it's not maybe what a social group would define as the goals or something. Yeah, and again, when you talk about automation and Teslas as high-efficiency electric vehicles and all that, that's great, but at the end of the day, he's still a car salesman, (laughs) and he is trying to get as many of those sold as possible. Right, right. So while there are some altruistic elements to his language and his actions, at the end of the day, there's also this other priority, which is not present when it comes from the public sector. Mm -hmm. So we just need to be aware of that. And a lot of times we aren't, we're taken in by that glitz and glamour. You know, everybody loves to solve things with technology. Technology is fun and exciting. You know, even when smartphones first came out, it was like, this is going to solve so many problems. (laughs) And there are benefits. And Mm -hmm. for Uber, Lyft, Teslas, all these other things, there are still benefits. But at the end of the day, he basically made bad transit. (laughs) <laughs> he built this, I think it's it's a half mile or a mile long tunnel under like, part of California. So it's underground. Underground. That's the width of a Tesla vehicle. Sure. Can only be accessed by special Tesla vehicles that have wheels that like fold out onto like this track and it goes sure. through. Um, so it's incredibly expensive to bore out subway tunnels. Mm-hmm. And now you've limited to single occupancy vehicles <laughs> by a single manufacturer. Mm-hmm. So you have this high cost and none of the major benefits of a subway, which mm-hmm. is high capacity transit. The other is, you know, e-scooters has been a big talking point. They've flooded mm. markets the same way that... We saw those in... Um, where were we? Uh, in Milwaukee. Milwaukee. Um, and they've come through the same way that Uber and Lyft first did, of mm-hmm. flooded the market, didn't ask for permission. They just showed up, dropped a bunch <laughs> right. of things down there. And again, they're trying to carve out market share, build up right. sort of a client base and these other business model motivations. Whereas in the cities themselves, they're dealing with these other things. So um, I'm actually a fan of Mm -hmm. e-scooters i think that they're low cost ways to get people around and they take up very very little space so we don't have to expand roadways we can fit more people out there but they have tiny wheels (laughs) so they don't deal well with potholes (laughs) you need to have really well maintained streets Mm -hmm. you have people who are not comfortable riding them in the the road Mm -hmm. and i don't blame them Mm -hmm. that means they're up on the sidewalk amidst pedestrians and cafe seating and Mm -hmm. dog walkers and there's a lot of problems there you have people on these devices that haven't sort of learned the lay of the land and i don't mean that as a gatekeeper but as somebody who has walked and biked in urban environments for a long time there are survival mechanisms that you learn Mm -hmm. of here are places i need to look out for cars here's where their blind spots generally are and now suddenly there are people out there who are on the sidewalk going across driveways of businesses and Mm -hmm. people driving are not looking for people on scooters and people on scooters are not looking for cars coming through there Mm -hmm. so scooters from what we've seen so far what we've heard from the medical field as well is that some of it may be anecdotal some of it is hard data but there's an increase in people admitted to er Mm, mm -hmm. 
for scooter related injuries. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I would also say even compared to walking and biking, like, of course, scooter related injuries mm-hmm. have gone up because more people are riding scooters. Right, but right. more so than especially biking are so non-collision non-coll- injuries. So people just falling off mm. because of the small wheels and potholes, because mm-hmm. of the quick acceleration that people may not be expecting mm-hmm. because of these different things. Because they're electric and yeah, yeah. Um, so again, I think that there's a lot of promise here, and it certainly highlights how unsafe a lot of our streets and sidewalks are designed now, mm-hmm. that we should have safe enough spaces that people right. could use these different yeah. things. Yeah, but, but again, it's kind of a jungle the, out there. <laughs> yeah, and when you take this tech solution, a lot of times they are focusing on let's get as many people out there mm-hmm. right away, which has benefits, but there are also very negative mm-hmm consequences as well on the individual level well and it's something i mean you can almost hear the like fairy tale in your head right of like there was this problem a a market failure nobody could get around and then we you know swooped in with our technology and our our e-scooters or uber or our musk tunnel or whatever you want to call it it's not so gross tesla tunnel tunnel. oh no let's never say that one again uh you know and and then we didn't ask permission they would the man wouldn't let us and and we made everything better overnight and the just the hubris the ego to say that like your solution is the one like yeah that probably happens but it's probably a minority of the ideas that are out there that can actually work that well and i I, to be as honest and genuine as i can i also want to put it out there that one of the reasons that I think that that type of problem solving doesn't work is that planners have done that Mm -hmm. for decades and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. This very, very top down disconnected, like I am going to plop down this solution and it is just going to solve things Right. without saying Mm -hmm. that cities are incredibly complicated Mm -hmm. and that a lot of our best solutions are very dispersed, small scale solutions that build up rather than hey, we're going to dump a 1,000 scooters into right. the city. And I don't want to discourage people from creative thinking and and trying novel solutions to difficult problems, but I do take issue with, um, and I think Nate Silver covers this really well in his book, uh, The Signal and the Noise. We see this on a, a data side of things, of people coming in and saying, I've, I've figured it out. I've predicted the economy. I've predicted the election. Nobody could do it. It's actually really simple. You kind of get these like pundit-style right. people who want to go on the news and, and talk about their, their big thing that they've done. And, uh, you know, there's, there's there's a reason that these problems have been out there for so long. And yeah, maybe you figured it out, but the ratio of people who've said they figured it out to the people who have actually figured it out is very large. That sort of condescending ego really bugs me. So don't do yeah. it. <laughs> and it's one of those of planners and engineers are not going to solve this on our own either. I'm happy that different fields are interested and in getting directly involved with problem solving in Mm -hmm. cities, suburbs, and rural areas. Like, there's a lot of issues to be addressed, and I'm happy to have their skill sets brought to bear as well, but it has to be collaborative. Exactly. There's a lot of context that we can help provide so that they can better define that problem. Do your due diligence, run the idea by people, rather than trying to go for the shock factor. Yeah. Um, So there's other examples, but... 
that's plenty of time <laughs> yeah, talking about this running. thing. It's a big year, a big episode. <laughs> so yeah. those are looking back at 2018. Yeah. Some positives, some bummers. Some cautionary tales. We'll see. Yeah. But it's been a good year, so tell me a little bit about 2019. Yeah, 2018, yeah, great year. Thanks to all of our guests who appeared on the show and, you know, taking that leap with us. You know, you, we didn't have any name recognition or anything, and, and you chose to help us out and to be a part of our show, and we really, really appreciate that. Um, we look forward to more great conversations in 2019. So we, we know a little bit about what is going to be happening in 2019, mm-hmm. and we're super-duper excited to announce we're going to have our first-ever live show in January. Woo! Hooray! Are you excited? I... Are you so excited you're going to throw up? I'm nervous. <laughs> I am nervous, but this is going to uh, be good. It's going to be really good. So our first live show is going to be Friday, January 25th from 9, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. at the state capitol in the rotunda. It is for the 2019 Iowa Latino Day on the Hill, which is run by the Iowa Commission of Latino Affairs. And we're going to be interviewing somebody. We don't know exactly where we are on the agenda yet. We'll release more details as we get them. But we'll be interviewing somebody from the commission to kind of share with the people gathered there, as well as all of our listeners, what that commission does and just all of that exciting work. So we're really, really excited to get out there and do a live performance in front of a new audience. If that's something that interests you, please, please join us. Again, that's Friday, January 25th from 9 to 12. Um, There's a couple more weeks before that, so I'm sure we'll mention it a couple more times on our future episodes. Yeah, but that'll be a fun one. I think something we haven't touched on as much is the legislative session, which is a big part of how does government work how do how do decisions get made that mm-hmm. affect our state and our communities so hopefully that's something that we'll dig into a bit more at 2019 Thanks again to all of you for joining us on this journey. Mm-hmm. Um, 2018 was a big year for us and we hope it was a great year for you. Have a safe and happy New Year's Yeah and we'll see you in 2019. This has been bright lights big data until next time Thanks. Thank you.